King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, or trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of, ba of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve the gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down, and worship the image that I have made? Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were cast into the, were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's commandment and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Hear the word of the Lord. Boy, I really wish I could fly like Mary Poppins. I 
know, she flies like an with an umbrella. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious What are you doing? I'm Mary Poppins, yo! Oh my gosh, you know you can't actually fly, right? Like with an umbrella, that doesn't really work. Mary Poppins is a book. <laughs> Well, thanks for warning me. I was just about to jump off the roof. So I saw. Because I was afraid to speak, well, I was just a lad. My father gave me nails at week and told me I was bad. But then one day I learned a word to save me aching nose. The biggest word you ever heard, and this is how it goes. Flora, I thought I told you you couldn't fly. With an umbrella or without. Well... I got more protection, so I should be able to do it without harming myself. That's not how it works. <laughs> oh, Samara. I mean, we've all been there before, right? You think you have a really good idea, you set your mind toward accomplishing your goal, but then someone, maybe with a better perspective or more experience, graciously intervenes and warns you that what you're about to do or the way you're living is actually harmful or dangerous or foolish or all three. And, and there's a couple ways that things can go. You can heed that warning and be spared the consequences of your ill-advised plans, or you can double down in the direction you were going and try and prevent the inevitable with pillows and helmets. And thankfully, in Samara's case, she received the grace of a second warning before falling to her demise. Now, as we enter into Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see a similar scenario with similar grace, all wrapped up in one of the most recognizable stories in the Bible. Let me set the scene. In Daniel chapter 2, the one we covered last week, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream in which he saw a massive statue. And the statue had a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet mixed with iron and clay. And, and this vision that he has, it greatly troubles him, and none of his advisors or experts could tell him what it means. But through the power of God, Daniel receives the ability to both know the dream and its interpretation. And, and through that interpretation, we learn that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. And then these other metals that make up the statue and other elements, these are kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But then this other character, this stone that is cut without human hands, comes and destroys the whole thing, all the human kingdoms. And we, we learn that that stone is the kingdom of God. Now, one might think that after a warning like this, Nebuchadnezzar would start asking questions. After all, he acknowledges that Daniel's God is powerful and should be revered. But instead of making changes to his leadership style, changes to his culture to align with the kingdom of God, and instead of asking, how can I serve God to avoid this calamity, Nebuchadnezzar tries to prevent the prophecy by bringing all the kingdoms of the world together, all his potential rivals, and to try and make one kingdom out of them. The first seven verses of Daniel 3 open the scene up for us. And what we learn is that following the dream of the kingdom of God destroying the statue representing uh, the kingdoms of the world, Nebuchadnezzar decides to build a massive statue of gold. 
The proportions of the statue are almost incredible. It's roughly 90 feet high, but only 9 feet wide. It's doubtful that that technology even existed in the 6th century BC to make something that could stand that was 90 by only 9 feet wide. But even if they could, it would be the oddest looking thing, because a ratio of 1 to 10 would be grotesquely elongated. So just to illustrate, here's a photo of our wonderful staff from Thursday uh, at the photo booth. It's to normal human scale. And then this next photo would be us if we were at the same dimensions uh, as the, the statue in Daniel 3, a, a 10 to 1 ratio. Okay. Now, is a statue like this even plausible? Well, Actually, yes. Closer to our story, there is this Colossus of Rhodes, a statue of the sun god Helios built around 280 BC, and it stood roughly 108 feet tall. But to achieve this height, it's believed that a statue would have to be placed upon a massive pedestal, like the Statue of Liberty, or, or like this artist's rendering of uh, the Colossus at Rhodes. So back to the statue in Daniel chapter 3. What is this thing even depicting? Was it a god or a goddess? Was it a, a, a depiction of the king himself? Well, we actually don't know. But in a way, the specific face or image of the statue doesn't really matter to the meaning of the story. In fact, I suspect that the biblical author leaves it intentionally vague, because no matter whose face is on the original statue, it was an idol. And in the original setting, it was an idol of human power and unity organized without God in the picture. So have you noticed the amount of repetition in the story when it was read just a few moments ago? Three lists of seven government officials, satrap, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, seven, a perfect number, making up all the rulers of the provinces of Babylon. All the provinces of the Babylonian Empire, which included all sorts of conquered nations and tribes and languages and cultures. It's almost like when the band starts playing all these different instruments, the, it's almost like the Pied Piper. Okay, And, and everyone is supposed to fall down and, and worship this idol representing the Babylonian way. Now, before we jump to criticizing this scene, we should point out that there are some good things we might say. Human unity and peace among nations, all things being equal, it's a good thing. In fact, I would say that that impulse we feel deep inside that desires nations and cultures and ethnicities to be unified, I think it's there because we're designed for it from the, from the very beginning. You may recall that it was Babylon uh, in the Tower of Babel story, where people first tried to unite to, to, to make a tower in their own strength, to make a name for themselves. But their supposed greatness as a unified people was founded on hundreds of thousands of slaves who were forced to labor uh, under the power of the minority who had all of the military might. So unity was an illusion, and God broke them up so that they couldn't do any worse damage to themselves or to others. But in the very next chapter of Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, God expresses his desire for unity among human beings. But his plan includes not making slaves out of people, but blessing them. 
His plan was to pour out blessing on Abraham and his family so that they might attract the nations. It's the carrot method to Babylon's stick method of motivation. But now back to Daniel 3, which is at least a thousand years plus years later than Genesis 12, Babylon is back at it, trying to achieve human unity through forced cooperation. And what they did is they used the age-old technique of assimilation. So rather than turning all of their conquered subjects into slaves, and they did that quite a bit, but, but many vast, vast amounts of their conquered people, they did something far more sinister and effective. They turned them into middle-class citizens. I know, the horror of it. Slaves would work because they had to work, but they would never be truly loyal to any conquering nation. But if you could make a people comfortable, and if you could give them just enough freedom and choice to be compliant, but not too much that they would organize and become troublesome, then you have more than captives. You have Babylonians in training. It's a well-known fact that decades later, when the Israelites were allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, think Ezra, Nehemiah, this time period, there were still thousands who never left Babylon. Why not? Because over the years, they had made a good life for themselves. They'd adopted the Babylonian and later Persian way of life, and they were completely assimilated into those cultures. We have records of several Jewish families who owned small businesses uh, during that time period, and, and even after uh, Daniel, after the Israelites went back to Jerusalem. They, they show records of owning homes and small tracts of land. They were intermarried with people. Their lives were hardly distinct from that of their overlords. And that's how assimilation works. It removes distinctiveness slowly, and it erodes identity so that eventually everyone seems to espouse the same values. Now, we're used to this sort of thinking um, in stories like Daniel 3, of course, or in other dicta uh, dictatorships like, like the Imperial Roman Empire or, or Soviet Russia or North Korea. But assimilation happens in democracies, too. And in fact, it might be more effective in places like the U.S. where we don't feel like we have someone forcing us, so it gives us the illusion of choice. In reality, advertisers are trying to win our hearts from the moment we set eyes on a screen or toddle our way into a toy store. They play on our insecurities by giving us impossible ideals for what physical beauty is and then offering to sell us products and clothing to help us fit in. But who's defining beauty that whole time? It's someone else. And we're told that our identity can be chosen like a piece of clothing or our next meal. And when we're inevitably confused as to who we are, there are a million products and media sites and ideological clubs and products to help us be who they say we should be. Perhaps the most deceptive tool of assimilation in recent times is social media. We think that we're freely making choices about what we see, who we interact with, and what types of news we ingest when we Google or Facebook or Instagram or on Twitter. But in reality, algorithms in the background are filtering content and always steering us toward a destination outside of our direct control. 
And the result is that our minds and our ideas are being shaped by someone or something else. And I'll tell you who that someone else is not. It's not Jesus. And that means that if we're not thinking and engaging our minds and critically thinking, most of us are being deformed rather than formed in Christ-likeness. This is what bowing down to the image was in Daniel chapter 3. It was an act of assimilating to the known world around one nation, one culture, one king, and one religious system. And by the end of verse 7, it seems like it's all worked. That at the sound of the band playing with all these instruments, all the peoples, the nations, and the people of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But then we learn that three Jews had been resisting this assimilation, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They've not bowed down to the idol, and this makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. So he, he has this furnace set up. Most likely it's the same furnace that he'd used for creating the idol in the first place. And he's already threatened to feed that furnace with anyone who would not bow down. And by the way, that sounds weird. It is really weird. But we actually have some examples of other ancient rulers doing similar things, burning people up in a furnace. Anyway, so now he's going to make a public spectacle of these three in front of the crowds. The stakes are high. A trial by fire, bow down or burn up are the stakes. And the key phrase is this, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Sounds familiar to me. And then I thought, it sounds just like Jesus on trial under Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him and Jesus won't answer. And he's, Pilate says to Jesus, you won't answer my questions? Don't you know that I have the power to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replies, you would have no power if it were not given to you from above. Nebuchadnezzar in this story has no power that is not given to him by God in the first place. The three friends are choosing to have faith in God and in, in his way instead of assimilating to the wicked ways of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here's a crucial part. In Aramaic, the sentence is literally translated if there is a God, he can deliver us. But if not, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Basically, they have faith that there is a God and that his law in the Hebrew scriptures is worth living for and worth dying for. His way of just, justice, his kind treatment of widows and orphans, and the way that he wants us to treat the weak and the oppressed, his way of, of Sabbath and work and care for the land, his vision for ethics and morality, these are the things that they believe lead to the good life. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are for those things. And then they go so far as to say, but even if God is not real, even if we find that he doesn't exist, we are not going to serve you. We are not going to bow down to your image or to the image representing Babylon. Okay, why? Because Babylon, for all its physical beauty and military power and high culture, it was a place that enslaved humans and took freedoms and treated people harshly and was opposed to the way of God. It dehumanized people. 
And even the gods that the Babylonians worshipped were horrible, conniving, adulterous, and consistently arbitrarily violent toward each other and toward human beings. And it begs the question, what stands are we willing to take? You know, as great a country that we live in, don't think for a moment that this ever was a Christian nation, as people so often spout about. Don't think that the good life that America preaches is somehow the same as the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Don't think for a second that that this political party or that one truly represents Jesus. Instead, we have to learn how to bless everything we can that reflects God's kingdom while firmly resisting those elements that do not. And this will bring about criticism and rejection by the world. It will bring about the flames of the powers that be that seek to wipe out the dissenting voice of Jesus. But it is in the flames, in the heat of rejection, that we learn who we really are. Fire purges and purifies and reveals what is truly on the inside. Speaking of flames, so Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and he orders his furnace to be stoked seven times hotter than usual. It's like Dr. Evil in Austin Powers, who orders a pool full of sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads as a way to kind of kill his enemies, right? As if a regular furnace that burns metal, it wasn't hot enough to kill people. But in this trial by fire, something amazing happens. The three friends are thrown in, and the only thing that burns are the prison guards and the bonds that were holding their hands and feet. Their turbans and trousers and robes, they all remain untouched, along with their skin and their hair. But their faith was tested in the flames, and they're shown to be faithful. And there's more. A fourth figure shows up in the fire with them. Nebuchadnezzar describes it as having the appearance of, of one like a son of, a son of the gods. And we should be careful not to try and identify this figure based on the description of Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pagan king and knew hardly anything about God or the Bible at all. So could this fourth figure be God himself, or an angel of God, or the pre-incarnate Jesus? Well, in a very important sense, it doesn't really matter, because it was either God or an agent of God, which means the same thing, that God was with them in the fire. And I want to close with these two points as we consider this story. First off, notice how the faith of these three provided a witness to God for Nebuchadnezzar and all the representatives of the known world who were watching. I find it fascinating that God does this spectacular deliverance when the whole world is watching. And I find it intriguing that Jesus comes to earth during the height of the Roman Empire when all the nations were freely traveling Roman roads, exchanging ideas, and hearing the gospel. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus is born, it's pagan magi, most likely from Babylon, who are some of the first to come and worship Jesus. How would Babylonian astrologers have heard about the prophecy telling about the birth of a Messiah in tiny little insignificant Israel? Well, how else, unless the faithful exiles like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not resisted evil and been witnesses for the living God?
And has not Jesus filled us with his life and his spirit in a time when the eyes of the world are on the United States for good or for bad? Jesus has called us to be salt and light. How might we resist assimilation so that we can learn to be a blessing to the world without being caught up by it and indistinguishable from it? Finally, no matter who the fourth figure was in Daniel chapter 3, we can know for sure that we have a Savior in Jesus. And when we fail, and we inevitably do fail, and we inevitably do bend the knee to the ways of the world in different ways, if we turn to him, he rescues us. He forgives us. He delivers us. And if we're honest, we know that there are many ways that we have lost faith in God's kingdom. There are many ways that we've assimilated into the way of the world. But I want you to hear the good news, and I'm saying it to myself just as much. Our mistakes cannot stop the kingdom of God from coming. And if we repent and place our trust in Jesus, even multiple times a day, our past mistakes cannot keep us out of the kingdom either. And I find that incredibly encouraging. And I pray you do too. We approach the communion table in different ways each week, from sometimes riffing off of the sermon text to a um, liturgical a set of words or sayings that roots us and grounds us in the faith. And today I want to uh, share a participatory prayer um, as a lead-in to the table of Jesus. Uh, so please join me in this prayer together. O holy Jesus, it is not by virtue that we are here, but by your gracious invitation. It is not to continue an ancient tradition, but to be nourished by our living Lord. It is not to celebrate your presence among us, but to catch a glimpse of heaven. Because in this sacrament, you give us a foretaste of that heavenly banquet where we shall see you face to face and enjoy the freedom of eternity when the limitations of earth are no more. God, our maker, as you gave your people water from a rock in the desert and fed them with bread in the wilderness, let your Holy Spirit fill this bread and this wine with the fullness of Jesus, so that we, in stretching out our hands, receive through faith food for our souls. In the intimacy of this sacrament, as heaven and earth become one, enable us to know you more deeply and resolve to love, honor, and serve you more faithfully in this world until your kingdom comes. Amen. Hear now these words of institution. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks to his father, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then Jesus took the cup and passing it around to his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus Christ, present with us now, as we do in this place or in the many places in which we're gathered. Breathe your spirit upon us and upon this bread and cup, that they may be heaven's food and drink for us, renewing us, sustaining us, and making us whole. Lord, send us out, filled with your spirit, to love and care for the world. Amen. One, two, three, four.